BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. We've uh, more weird science with Matt for you today, uh, but let's start with a quick update on the story about Cruise, the General Motors robo-taxi company uh, we talked about a few weeks ago. Hey, Rich. Uh, so, yeah, a, a quick aside, because people are probably expecting us to be talking about OpenAI and Sartman uh. and all of that whatever it is today. So uh, because we've been off air with the show for a while, this was actually prepared sort of before any of that uh, occurred. So I imagine that we'll be touching on it in uh, uh, Enterprise Biz Bites if I'm mm-hmm. on there next week. Um, otherwise, we'll definitely be talking about it here on uh, Matt's Blaine as well. Uh, but back to that story you mentioned about Cruise. So the story from a few weeks ago was about uh the company ending its robo-taxi services in San Francisco. And this followed an incident where uh, a woman was seriously injured uh, by being pinned under uh, a cruise car. Now, she was actually hit by uh, another vehicle, which did a hit and run, and she was subsequently then hit by the cruise robo-taxi. So according to uh, Ars Technica this week, she's still in hospital recovering from her injuries. Uh, But uh, media reports from uh, TechCrunch and other places uh, alleged that uh, the company had been less than uh, forthcoming in the video footage that it provided from the vehicle's cameras. Uh, The DMV's assertion is that uh, the cruise vehicle, after its initial stop, tried to pull over while the pedestrian was still underneath the car. Yeah. Uh, And it moved a distance of about uh, 20 feet at a speed of around uh, seven miles per hour. And that was something that wasn't shown in the original footage or the initial footage that was Mm. sent to authorities. So since then, uh, California has pulled its licenses for the company to operate taxi services. And Cruise has voluntarily ceased all its passenger operations in the cities across the US that it's been operating in. So how big of a setback do we think this is then? Pretty enormous. Uh, General Motors has sunk a colossal $8 billion into the company since 2016. Uh, It's made a a big bet sort of company-wide that uh, this kind of autonomous transport will open up new uh, revenue streams for the mm. company in terms of ride share, in terms of you know commercial uh, commercial transport opportunities as well. So earlier this week, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Cruise, Kyle Vogt, uh, resigned from the company. Uh, Reuters quoted uh, an internal email prior to his departure where he said as CEO, he takes uh, uh, full responsibility for the situation in Cruise today. And he makes no excuses. He says there's no sugarcoating what happened, uh, that the company needs to double down on safety, transparency, and community engagement. Because, you know, if you're talking about uh, modes of public transport, it mm. is all about trust. You have to trust that mm. the, the vehicle that's taking you is safe to operate. Uh, although the company has uh, announced plans this week to relaunch limited uh, operations uh, in an unnamed city, uh, we don't know when that will start. Um, but Cruise's problems, they aren't just about uh, 
this collision. Uh, the company is now being invested for a, a second pedestrian incident. So there are two pedestrian incidents. And in August, one of the cars apparently hit a San Francisco fire truck. Now, in terms of things to hit, um, yeah. that are fairly obvious, big red yeah. fire truck, you know. Um, but anyway, recent reporting from the Intercept and Futurism suggests that uh, crews knew about an even bigger flaw with some of uh, their systems, that those systems struggled to recognize children. Um, I'm surprised you didn't make a joke about whether that's a feature or a design flaw. There's no need because I've made you do it for me. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the Intercept has uh, reported that cruises' vehicles um, couldn't reliably detect children. Now, this wasn't just a small bug. It was a potentially catastrophic issue. Uh, safety assessments explicitly indicated that the autonomous vehicles weren't exercising uh, the necessary care around kids, uh, you know, just doing their normal human things like uh, mm -hmm. slowing down near near crosswalks, uh, the crosswalks, or you know when a child comes near to the seat. So in a simulated scenario, uh, you know, not real, as in you know just running a computer simulation, a robo taxi clipped a toddler-sized dummy at twenty-eight miles Oof. per hour even though the systems actually detected it was there. Uh, the assessment said, uh, or concluded rather, that uh, we can't rule out that a fully autonomous vehicle might have actually struck the child. Isn't the point, uh, and about you've made this in the past as well, about autonomous cars is that they should be safer than those driven by me and you? Yeah, so this is, this is the thing. In, in theory... Uh, there is potential for self-driving vehicles to cut down on accidents, but it's like any automated system. It works better when there are no deviations. So obviously it will work better where roads are full of other autonomous vehicles that they can you know, communicate with, that they can handshake with. Uh, and that means not really having human beings wandering around or, or animals or any of those things that introduce flaws into the system. Yeah. But the biggest proviso has to be that the systems actually work as advertised. And by work, I mean, they have to be at least as good as the best human driver. You know, if they're not at that kind of Michael Schumacher standard as baseline, then the tech simply isn't ready. Mm. Uh, for example, I, I read a, a, another story uh, about, uh, or a story about another EV manufacturer this week, where the cameras that powered its assisted uh, driving system became confused by fog. What? Now, you know, we don't all live in California. We don't all live in arid Mediterranean climates where weather seldom fluctuates. Mm. Uh, and you know, I've said it kind of jokingly before, but how do you build autonomous systems that can cope with the chaos of roads in countries like Malaysia, where you have, you know, periods of the day where there's virtual gridlock, but at the same time, although the cars are stationary, motorbikes are crawling and weaving in and out of cars, 
at, at much higher speeds. Mm. So what has the response been like from uh, Cruise so far? Well, for, for this story uh, about the, the children, um, Cruise maintains that it's inaccurate to say that the, the vehicles were not detecting or exercising appropriate caution around uh, pedestrian children. Uh, personally, I think all children are pedestrian. But anyway, uh, Brian Walker-Smith, uh, a, a law professor at the University of South Carolina who focuses on uh, self-driving technology, told The Intercept that it was egregious for crews to claim a safety record better than human drivers when their own memo highlighted this increased risk to children. Uh, and in fact, it would seem that attempts to fix the issue actually led to a regression where the robo-taxis became even poorer at identifying kids. Um, this may sort of hark back to something uh, you said a few episodes ago about uh, chat GPT getting mm. less smart. Uh, but Cruz did acknowledge an error um, or that it was an error that caused this, and they've claimed that it's now fixed. But rather than openly admitting the risk posed to children, uh, reports are that crews opted instead for a workaround. Uh, they've reduced the operation of their cars, or, or at the time, before they were obviously taken off the roads, they reduced the operation of their cars during daytime hours when more children are likely to be around. I'm not sure that's a workaround. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't figure out if it's the technology or the lack of transparency that's the most troubling aspect of all of this. Well, again, this goes back to something we were discussing on BizBytes a while ago. So the issues relating to the black box nature of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies. You know, you have all of these cameras and sensors that are sending data back to a machine brain. Mm. Uh, but, you know, what is that machine brain doing with that information? We're not entirely sure. How mm. is it choosing which actions to select from the data that it's processing? And that's assuming that the hardware actually works, which, as the fog example I mentioned shows, that may not always be the case. Okay, then. Um, are we sticking with cars or are we heading to the stars? Well, uh, on that very whimsical note, I think we can do both. Um, we can uh, deviate to the stars for a moment and then we'll briefly return to, to cars. Um, in your opinion, what's the hmm. best material to make a satellite from? I would imagine something uh, extremely light and um, pretty good with holding on to things, pretty good with torsion, so it can be strength, but can also wiggle a little bit, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. Best material. I don't know. Yeah, something light, a metal yeah. that's light. A metal that's light. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping you'd opt for something like cheese, in which case I could just go, <laughs> oh, how ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but probably not that much more ridiculous than what we're about to talk about. So it's not every day we get to talk about forestry and space in the same sentence. Uh, a uh, Kyoto. Yeah, true. Yeah. A Kyoto University um, uh, research team uh, in collaboration with uh, Japan's space agency and NASA is preparing to send a wooden satellite into orbit next summer. That's right. You heard. <laughs> That's correct. A wooden satellite. That, that sparks to me like a huge fire is, surely. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't think they're building the rocket propulsion system out of 
would. Uh, probably the satellite will be in the hold of a, a regular rocket ship, um, which you know obviously will deploy it in orbit. Uh, this is a, another story by way of uh, futurism. Um, the team from uh, Japan uh, pointed out that uh, many of the wood-related problems like burning, rotting, um, and deformation are, of course, hmm. non-issues in space. They're only hmm. things that happen to it on, on Earth because there's no oxygen in space for fire, so you don't have combustion. There's no bacteria to cause decay. And the lack of atmosphere means that there's no weather to warp the material. Mm. Now, in terms of durability, we've covered a lot of superwood stories on the show um, that demonstrate the remarkable strength and properties of uh, cellulose and, and lignin. Uh, we've talked about skyscrapers being built from super light composite woods um, that have, you know, kind of the strength of steel. So, what about strength and durability then? Well, you know, we've got lots of structures that are hundreds of years old uh, that are made of wood and lots of rusted through cars that are only a decade or two old. So, That's true. you know, we yeah. have this idea that, that wood isn't a material that, that lasts. The magnolia wood that they're using for the satellite is called uh, Lignosat. It has a strength to weight ratio comparable to that of aluminium. So exactly what you were saying before, a very light, mm -hmm. durable metal. Um, better than that, wooden satellites could actually leave us with a lot less debris in space. Um, so we keep hearing, yeah, you know, about all yeah. of this, this kind of cloud of rubbish that's uh, building in sort of low Earth orbit. Because these satellites would be organic, at the end of their life, you simply launch them into the atmosphere where mm. they burn up harmlessly because yeah. it is wood and it does combust. Now, Lignosat's mission will last at least six months, during which it will be subjected to, to all of the, the rigors of space. That's extreme temperature swings from um, minus 150 degrees Celsius to plus 150 degrees. Um, you know, there's a, there's a range of uh, 300 degrees, I think, every 90 minutes as it orbits the Earth. So the preliminary tests have had good results, but the real challenge is whether the satellite can handle this intense, mm. repeated thermal cycling for extended durations of time. Do you think there's bigger potential for this then? Stuff like uh, human habitats or, well, structures uh, uh, in, in space or even on the moon, I guess? Well, yeah. I mean, as well as being environmentally sound, the team speculates that wood could offer better protection against space radiation um, compared to uh, a lot of materials. So that means it could actually be a, a bit of a game changer for crafting um, the interiors of spacecraft and space habitats as well. Plus, they speculate that there are potential psychological benefits for long-term space mm. dwellers. Mm. You know, imagine having that that touch of something natural like wood inside a, a spacecraft rather than these cold metal walls. Um, one thing that I wonder, uh, as, you know, we've talked about uh, colonizing planets like Mars in the past, and one of the ideas for that has been to send out 
ships full of machines uh, that are basically 3D printers that print everything, including the robots that will do the construction once they actually land. Uh, so it will make all of the, the machinery to mine the metals and the other materials to build human habitats before people actually go out there. Mm, now, mm. obviously, not a lot of trees to cut down on Mars, but um, I do wonder if this is successful, could it also lead to an expansion in bio-research, you know, creating lab habitats for trees and other organic materials to grow on planets to provide those building materials? But, you know, maybe I'm just thinking a bit too sci-fi. That's fascinating, though. Um, but you did mention coming back to cars. Yeah, um, but by way of sticking with would strangely enough so um tesla's uh, cybertruck has been back in the news uh, recently again not going to touch on all the recent elon musk controversies or the slide in the tesla share price or even that spacex launch from a, a week or so ago i was very sad about that one actually i hate mm. seeing rocket ships explode i always feel really disappointed um as with Cruise um, and Tesla in general, it doesn't seem to be a great time for electric vehicles, um, certainly at least in some Western markets. Uh, the US is reporting softening demand for electric vehicles. Uh, GM's shares have slid around 16% this year, partly because of uh, infrastructure issues and also because some manufacturers have released you know, fairly unremarkable electric vehicles people yeah. just aren't impressed uh, yeah. i mean if you want one example you can check out a video titled towing with my ford lightning ev pickup was a total disaster again title kind of give it gives it away that's on the uh Hoovies <laughs> garage youtube channel um for the uh for the record um Hoovy actually bought his lightning uh he was excited to own and test it uh so it wasn't you know a, a clickbait piece or or a trash piece to to kind of trash forward it sounds like it's a friend of yours or you, or you know him or something well it, sometimes it My feels that Hoovy, way with yeah exactly know. with kind of youtube channels so uh, i've been watching the the channel for a couple of years um and then suddenly he makes this video and it, it goes viral uh, and it ended up sort of much to his, I think, consternation, being co-opted by uh, fossil fuel advocates and climate deniers, um, oh. which he's, you know, neither of which are things he is. He's just a car nerd. Um, and it's it's kind of similar to what I think, you know, alternatives to, to fossil fuels are great. Um, they don't always have to be better than what we have, but they do have to work and mm. in the case of this video basically it didn't if the things that are supposed to replace something don't work then you know what's the point which is what some people might be asking themselves right now would you get back to the wood please i would i would <laughs> talk about the wood um no uh the cybertruck so when it was launched um when was it? I think it was 2019. The yeah. design kind of polarized people. There were some who thought that its, you know, shiny wedge shape was really futuristic, like me. Uh, me. And yeah, and others who thought it looked like a doorstop, also kind yeah. of valid. Yeah. Um, four years on, uh, the prototypes are actually starting to be seen on roads in the US. And I've got to say, it actually looks a little bit 
outdated now. You know, in yeah. the last four years, the world has kind of moved on. Uh, EV trucks like the Rivian have grabbed people's imaginations. And early reaction to the cars on the road hasn't been that great. Uh, Jalopnik, I think, has a piece about the not-so-awesome build quality of a, a matte black version that it spied on roads in California. Uh, there have been reports of units broken down by the side of highways, which, of course, brings me back to wood. Wood that you did. I know. I, I've got to stop making you do these horrible things. Yeah. Um, a guy called uh, Trong Van Dow, uh, who owns a woodworking company called ND Woodworking Art, uh, he specializes in building wooden cars, and he built a wooden Cybertruck in 100 days. And we're not just talking, you know, a, a knockoff copy there. This is lovingly crafted. Every panel fits. It's sanded. It's varnished. The interior is lovely. Uh, you can check out the build on the company's YouTube page where it's already had more than half a million views. It's fully functional. Uh, it drives. It's got the Cyberlite strip at the front. Uh, and, you know, it's not a, a commission. It's just a homage. The, the guy is a big fan of Tesla. He likes Elon Musk. Uh, what I haven't been able to figure out is whether it has uh, a petrol or electric engine. That doesn't seem to be uh, to be mentioned. But he's even built a wooden clad quad bike for his young son that <laughs> sits in the bed of the truck. And there's, you know, a wooden platform that slides out that the, the quad bike goes uh up and down. Uh, so if you're into that kind of thing, as I said, there's a YouTube channel, uh, ND Woodworking Art, and there's a time-lapse video of the build if you want to watch. Brilliant. And when we come back, who knows where we'll be heading here on Matt's Plane of BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome back to Matt's Plane this morning. If you're still here after that trying first half, thank you very much uh, for staying. Uh, you've more persistence than I have. Now, where are we? Are we in a forest? Are we in space? Are we on an auto shop floor? I, I, I don't know anymore. No, um, people will stick with uh, bodies and behavior for a bit. Um, always a dodgy subject with me but let's start with the nose is is that why i have to read who knows where we'll end up in part two yeah i'm i'm cheap and i'm cheesy i've put my hand up readily <laughs> um yeah i'm kind of like the pizza that seemed uh, like a good idea at uh, 2 a.m and then gives you 36 hours of indigestion oh um, yes you know uh i'm I'm good at callbacks, um, referencing the verticals of this show. I didn't say, however, that the callbacks are good. Uh, on the subject of which, how do you smell? I'm not falling for that. It's like Updock. <laughs> it's a genuine question. Um, research from, uh, I think, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, this story is, is via IFL Science and the journal Current Biology, by the way. Um, has shown that each nostril 
actually has its own distinct sense of smell. So the answer to how do you smell is actually twice. The researchers studied the brain activity of uh, 10 people as they sniff different odors. Uh, Now, we've talked about tests like this before that rely on brain implants. The the volunteers were uh, epilepsy patients with uh, uh, depth electrodes uh, already implanted in their brains to to monitor their seizures. So Hmm. using these devices, the scientists recorded activity in the olfactory cortex during a smell test. Uh, They used some classic smells, uh, banana, coffee, and eucalyptus. Uh, Each aroma was piped into either the left nostril, the right nostril, or both. And the intensity was kept constant to ensure that the testing was fair. So what the brain activity showed was actually pretty amazing. When the participants smelled with both nostrils, their brains registered two distinct signals, one in Mm. each hemisphere of the olfactory cortex. The signals weren't identical, indicating that each nostril is actually processing the scent in its own unique way. So timing is key to how and what we smell. Um, Which nostril it hits first then? Well, a scent would uh, first activate uh, the the brain hemisphere on the same sn- uh, same side as the sniffing nostril, and about half a second later, the other hemisphere would kick in. So this split second difference might be uh, a subconscious way for us to tell uh, what direction a smell is coming from. Kind of ah. like ah uh, yeah, like kind of olfactory echolocation. The researchers suggest we could be using these time differences to help us quickly figure out the source of a smell with a single sniff. Uh, it's you know an evolutionary development that we're only now starting to to kind of uncover, to to unlock, and to understand. Okay, now from smelling to thinking, I believe. I spend a, a lot of time watching video clips uh, of people saying and seeing to uh, seeming to believe really easily disprovable things. Uh, <laughs> now, we've all seen some of these things. Yeah, exactly. You're laughing. Um, instead of arguing something on its logic and merits, uh, they argue based on what abouts and what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the earth isn't this. What about candy floss? Uh, we've already discussed the, the indigestion from... Pizzagate earlier in the show, you know, see, told you I was Mm. good at callbacks. So this is uh, another story from IFL Science about a study from the University of Amsterdam, which investigates this idea of willful ignorance. And what's startling is the extent to which people seem to embrace it. Mm -hmm. The study suggests that nearly half of us might turn a blind eye to something if it means we can avoid feeling bad about not doing the right thing. Um, That feels like a a normal response. Do you think that's an abnormal response? Well, I mean, yeah, I can, I can see why people would want to feel that way. Um, The, the research team conducted a a meta analysis of 22 studies, uh, totaling more than 6,500 participants 
They observed how people behaved when they could choose whether to be uh, informed about the effects of their decisions. And I, I think quite a few people may be familiar with this example. In one study, participants had to choose between giving themselves more money at the expense of another person or splitting the amount equally. Uh, mm. So when they knew the outcomes, the majority of people acted altruistically. But when given the option to remain ignorant about the impact of their action, many choo chose simply not to know. Right. What's the rationale behind a see-no-evil approach? Then? Well, as you said, uh, isn't, isn't it kind of a normal response? It's kind of like a psychological buffer, um, armor even. Because if you don't know the harm you're causing, you can't feel guilty about it, right? Mm, it's mm. easier to maintain that self-image of, yourself being a, a good person if you're not confronted with the consequences of your poor actions. Like, you know, I'm somebody who recycles, except for when I can't be bothered. Um, you know, how many people <laughs> will raise their hands to that one? Yeah, 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 I recycle, but, you know, sometimes I don't. Um, yeah, or yeah. the traffic light that's still on amber in your dreams Um but at the same time, you're not the kind of person who jumps red lights. You know, mm -hmm. this notion ties into the broader discussion about the origins of altruism, uh, this idea that uh, do we do good because we care or because we want to look good to ourselves and to others? Is there a difference in behavior when people are informed versus when they actively seek out information? Well, the study found out that people who went out of their way to learn about the consequences were more likely to act in the best interest of other people's. Uh, it's about seven percentage points more, I think, to be exact. Uh, this shows that there, there is a subset of people who are genuinely generous, not just socially compliant or image conscious. Um, and genuinely, you know, I don't know if I could honestly put myself in that altruistic category. Mm. I mean, how about you? Um, I remember reading years ago about a similar study called the shopping cart study. Have you heard of that one? Uh, Very I similar thing um, where uh, essentially a, a group of scientists and researchers left a shopping cart in the middle of uh, like a, you know, a car, a car park or something. And, um, it was all about the amount of people that would take the shopping cart back without there being any kind of pressure to do so. And the people that took it back um, were generally seen as being more altruistic because, you know, you don't have to take a, a shopping cart back. Somebody will come and collect it most of the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but just that simple act of, like, do you take your shopping cart back has stuck with me for so long that, I always take my shopping cart, mate, because I want to feel like I'm a good person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think that's the point. Uh, uh, or to put it into sort of uh, English parlance, you're a mug, mate. Um, <laughs> you know, as as you said, you know, there there are there are people who are who are supposed to to go around and and pick those things up, and it it can be uh, quite mm. tempting to just you know, walk Just away. Leave it. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it opens up a lot of questions about, you know, that, that moral compass. If willful ignorance is a, is a common refuge to avoid acting altruistically, then we might need to rethink about how we 
encourage ethical behavior. And that study you mentioned is a, a really good example. Mm. It's not just about making people aware of consequences, but also about cultivating a genuine concern for others beyond that idea of self-image, which we've both mm-hmm. discussed. Um, like mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, I, I think this is a fictional example, but it's like that example of the influencer cleaning up a beach and simply dropping the trash bag on the sand yes. the moment the live camera kicks off. Uh, somehow we have to, you know, shift those perceptions of altruism from uh, a societal expectation, I guess, to, to more of a personal conviction. Mm. Okay. Um, what should we play out with then? Well, I was uh, going to do a couple of stories about rats. Uh, one about how they can use their uh, use their imagination to recall or remember places that they've been to, uh, and another about how they squeak in pleasure to be around other rats. But you know, people don't really like rats, so if you're interested in those stories, <laughs> you can Google them and uh, and check them for yourself. Um, So I thought we'd go out with another one of those stories uh, that's along the lines of, why is someone getting paid to do that? Uh, (laughs) So first, a question for you. Have you Uh, ever done a a belly flop when trying to dive into a pool? Absolutely. More more times than I care to remember. And can you describe how it felt? Extremely painful. You you have to remember that when you're jumping into water from a great height, it it it's not soft. It hurts. <laughs> it slaps. But do you know why it hurts? That's that's the um, question. I'd imagine it's because you have a larger surface area when your belly is flopped out, so to speak, and you're hitting a flat, a relatively flat surface. Kind of. Um, Daniel Harris from uh, Brown University puts it very simply, the water needs to move out of the way really fast, and that (laughs) creates a rather painful reaction force. So basically, it's a a literal crash course in Newtonian physics. Right. Um, Unlike rigid objects, our bodies are flexible. So when something flexible hits the surface of water, it changes shape, it deforms. Mm. And that's supposed to reduce the force of impact. But this is the twist. Softening the blow doesn't always work out the way that we think. It doesn't necessarily lower that kind of peak impact force. And in some cases, like with the belly flop, it might even increase it. Um, So this isn't one of those things that, uh, why are you getting paid to uh, study belly flops? There is some pretty solid science going on here. So is this your kind of research, then, mate? You know, they they push a bunch of weaker kids into the, the swimming pool, they film their pain. Is this the stuff that you like? Um, well, no weedy <laughs> kids were harmed during the tests, I should point out. Uh, the team used a mix of high-speed cameras, sophisticated sensors, and mathematical modeling to get the results. Sure. They dropped... I know. I mean, it's a nice idea, isn't it, to just go to the pool and just push people in and go, sorry, mates, for science. Um, No, they actually dropped a a cylindrical mass into the water, um, but with a catch. They attached a soft impactor um, using a system a bit like car suspension to the the end of the, the cylinder. So theoretically, the springs should distribute the, the force uh, over a, a sort of longer time and area, which softens the impact. And as we said before, the 
results were kind of counterintuitive. And apparently it's all about the spring tension. If the springs are too stiff, it doesn't absorb enough of that crash. But if it's mm. too soft, you add a lot of vibration to the system that can ramp up the force. Um, mm. Again, you know, imagine that 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 movement of your belly when you hit the when you hit the water. Oh, I, don't, and the I don't need to imagine it. No, no, I know, but the you know we've all seen sort of slow mo of that and the ripples that go through the flesh, and mm. that's the same kind of thing. It's vibrations going through the, the the system, so it's a delicate balance. And they found that sometimes a more flexible impactor actually leads then to a harder slam. Okay, then. So beyond improving pool signs, what has this achieved? Well, as I said, you know, it's not really about improving your belly flop technique, if anyone wants to improve such a thing. It's about enhancing the way we design structures to withstand high-impact uh, forces. The research has significant implications for um, naval and marine engineering, uh, because high-impact water entries aren't just a concern for, you know, overzealous swimmers. They're also an issue for military and research equipment. Mm. So the next step is to create a, a, ro a robotic impactor that can mimic, you know, diving birds, wading birds who right. go into the water with, you know, hardly a splash. Um, so they want something that can adjust its form so that it minimizes the forces during water entry. And that's one of the reasons that we do this show. The weirder science gets, the more useful it turns out it can be. Mm. Wooden satellites and belly flops are saving the world. That's a pretty good outcome for a Friday for me. <laughs> Thank you very much for today's show, Matt. My pleasure. Of course, folks, this was Matt Splained. If you missed any part of this show, I, I recommend you download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. I recommend the BFM app. That's on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And follow Matt around, you know, Find him on Twitter. He's at Culture Matt there. It's called X now, remember. Uh, LinkedIn, he's Culture Pop and Culture Matt. And uh, on the web, he's at culturepop.com. Of course, he does have a whole bunch of stuff on his, what do you call it, Matt? Those. Oh, let's not talk about my sub stack at the moment because I haven't updated it for a while, but I will come let's back not after do that, Christmas. Yeah. He does have a sub stack, but, you know, like his recycling, he gets a bit lazy. Anyway, <laughs> that's all for this week. We'll be back same time, same place next week for Matt's Plate here on BFM 89.9.